Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. February 6. On this date in literary history in the year 1937, Of Mice and Men is published. John Steinbeck's novella, Of Mice and Men, the story of the bond between two migrant workers is published. He adapted the book into a three-act play, which was produced later the same year. The story brought national attention to Steinbeck's work, which had started to catch on in 1935 with the publication of his first successful novel, Tortilla Flat. Steinbeck was born and raised in the Salinas Valley, where his father was a county official and his mother a former schoolteacher. A good student and president of his senior class in high school, Steinbeck attended Stanford University intermittently in the early 1920s. In 1925, he moved to New York City, where he worked as a manual laborer and a journalist while writing stories and novels. His first two novels were not successful. In 1930, he married Carol Henning, the first of his three wives, and moved to Pacific Grove, California. Steinbeck's father gave the couple a house and a small income while Steinbeck continued to write. His third novel, Tortilla Flat, in 1935, was a critical and financial success, as were such subsequent books as In Dubious Battle in 1935 and Of Mice and Men in 1937, both of which offered social commentaries on injustices in various types. In 1939, Steinbeck won the Pulitzer Prize for The Grapes of Wrath, a novel tracing a fictional Oklahoma family as they lose their family farm in the Depression and moved to California seeking a better life. His work after World War II, including Cannery Row and The Pearl, continued to offer social criticism but became more sentimental. Steinbeck tried his hand at movie scripts in the 1940s, writing successful films like Forgotten Village in 1945 and Viva Zapata in 1952. He also took up the serious study of marine biology and published a nonfiction book, The Sea of Cortez, in 1941. His 1962 nonfiction book, Travels with Charlie, describes his travels across the United States in a camper truck with his poodle, Charlie. Steinbeck won the Nobel Prize in 1962 and died in New York in 1968. February 7. On this date in rock and roll history in the year 1964, the Beatles arrive in New York. Pan Am Yankee Clipper Flight 101 from London Heathrow lands at New York Kennedy Airport and Beatlemania arrives. It was the first visit to the United States by the Beatles, a British rock and roll quartet that had just scored its first number one U.S. hit six days before with I Want to Hold Your Hand. At Kennedy, the Fab Four, dressed in mod suits and sporting their trademark pudding bowl haircuts, were greeted by 3,000 screaming fans who caused a near riot when the boys stepped off their plane and onto American soil. Two days later, Paul McCartney, age 21, 
Ringo Starr, age 23, John Lennon, 23, and George Harrison, 20, made their first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, a popular television variety show. Although it was difficult to hear the performance over the screams of teenage girls in the studio audience, an estimated 73 million U.S. television viewers, or about 40% of the U.S. population, tuned in to watch. Sullivan immediately booked the Beatles for two more appearances that month. The group made their first public concert appearance in the United States on February 11 at the Coliseum in Washington, D.C., and 20,000 fans attended. The next day, they gave two back-to-back performances at New York's Carnegie Hall, and police were forced to close off the streets around the venerable music hall because of fan hysteria. On February 22nd, the Beatles returned to England. The Beatles' first American tour left a major imprint in the nation's cultural memory. The American youth poised to break away from the culturally rigid landscape of the 1950s, the Beatles, with their exuberant music and good-natured rebellion, were the perfect catalyst for the shift. Their singles and albums sold millions of records, and at one point in April 1964, all five best-selling U.S. singles were Beatles songs. At the time, the Beatles' first feature film, A Hard Day's Night, was released in August. Beatlemania was epidemic the world over. Later that month, the four boys from Liverpool returned to the United States for their second tour and played to sold-out arenas across the country. Later, the Beatles gave up touring to concentrate on their innovative studio recordings, such as 1967's Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and a psychedelic concept album that is regarded as a masterpiece of popular music. The Beatles' music remained relevant to youth throughout the great cultural shifts of the 1960s, and critics of all ages acknowledged the songwriting genius of the Lennon-McCartney team. In 1970, the Beatles disbanded, leaving a legacy of 18 albums and 30 top 10 U.S. singles. During the next decade, all four Beatles pursued solo careers with varying success. Lennon, the most outspoken and controversial Beatle, was shot to death by a deranged fan outside his New York apartment building in 1980. McCartney was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II in 1997 for his contribution to British culture. In November 2001, George Harrison succumbed to cancer. Ringo Starr was knighted himself for services to music in 2018. February 8. On this date, in World War II history in the year 1943, Americans secure Guadalcanal. Japanese troops evacuate Guadalcanal, leaving the island in Allied possession after a prolonged campaign. The American victory paved the way for other Allied wins in the Solomon Islands. Guadalcanal is the largest of the Solomons, a group of 992 islands and atolls, 347 of which are uninhabited in the South Pacific Ocean. The Solomons, which are located northeast of Australia and have 87 indigenous languages, were introduced to Europe in 1568 by the Spanish navigator Alvaro de Mandana de Nera. In 1893, the British annexed Guadalcanal, along with the other central and southern Solomons. The Germans took control of the northern Solomons in 1885, but transferred these islands, except for Bougainville and Bucca, to the British in 1900. The Japanese invaded the Solomons in 1942 during World War II and began building a strategic airfield on Guadalcanal. 
On August 7 of that year, U.S. Marines landed on the island. The Japanese responded quickly with sea and air attacks. A series of bloody battles ensued in the debilitating tropical heat as Marines sparred with Japanese troops on land. While in the waters surrounding Guadalcanal, the U.S. Navy fought six major engagements with the Japanese between August 24 and November 30. In mid-November 1942, the five Sullivan brothers from Waterloo, Iowa, died together when the Japanese sank their ship, the USS Juno. Both sides suffered heavy losses of men, warships, and planes in the battle for Guadalcanal. An estimated 1,600 U.S. troops were killed, over 40,000 were wounded, and several thousand more died from disease. The Japanese lost 24,000 soldiers. On December 31, 1942, Emperor Hirohito told Japanese troops they could withdraw from the area. The Americans secured Guadalcanal about five weeks later. The Solomons gained their independence from Britain in 1978. In the late 1990s, fighting broke out between rival ethnic groups on Guadalcanal and continued until an Australian-led international peacekeeping mission restored order in 2003. Today, with a population of over a half a million people, the Solomons are known as a scuba diver and fisherman's paradise. February 9. On this date in baseball history in the year 1971, Satchel Paige is nominated to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Pitcher Leroy Satchel Paige becomes the first Negro League veteran to be nominated for the Baseball Hall of Fame. In August of that year, Page, a pitching legend known for his fastball, showmanship, and the longevity of his playing career, which spanned five decades, was inducted. Joe DiMaggio once called Page the best and fastest pitcher I've ever faced. Page was born in Mobile, Alabama, most likely on July 7, 1906, although the exact date remains a mystery. He earned his nickname Satchel as a boy when he earned money carrying passengers' bags at train stations. Baseball was segregated when Page started playing baseball professionally in the 1920s, so he spent most of his career pitching for Negro League teams around the United States. During the winter season, he pitched for teams in the Caribbean and Central and South America. As a barnstorming player who traveled thousands of miles each season, and played for whichever team met his asking price, he pitched an estimated 2,500 games, had 300 shutouts, and 55 no-hitters. In one month in 1935, he reportedly pitched 29 consecutive games. In 1947, Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier and became the first African-American to play in the major leagues when he joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. The following year, Page also entered the majors, signing with the Cleveland Guardians, then known as the Cleveland Indians, and becoming, at age 42, baseball's oldest rookie. He helped the Guardians win the pennant that year and later played for the St. Louis Browns and the Kansas City A's. Page retired from the majors in 1953, but returned in 1965 to pitch three innings for the Kansas City A's. He was 59 at the time, making him the oldest person to ever play in the major leagues. In addition to being famous for his talent and longevity, Page was also well-known for his sense of humor and colorful observations on life, including, don't look back, something might be gaining on you, and age is a question of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. Page died on June 8, 
1982 in Kansas City, Missouri. February 10. On this date in music history in the year 1972, Ziggy Stardust makes his earthly debut. It was one of those events that virtually nobody witnessed, but many wish they had. The concert at London's Toby Jug Pub on February 10, 1972, when the relatively minor rocker named David Bowie became the spaceman Ziggy Stardust. While it might be said of many such historic moments like John Lennon meeting Paul McCartney or Elvis ad-libbing That's All Right Mama between takes at Sun Studios, that their significance became clear only in hindsight, that there was at least one man who knew exactly where Ziggy's earthly debut would lead, David Bowie himself. I'm going to be huge, is what David Bowie told Melody Maker less than three weeks earlier and six months prior to the release of the album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And it's quite frightening in a way, because I know that when I reach my peak and it's time for me to be brought down, it will be a bump. The last bit may have been a case of Bowie confusing his Ziggy persona with real life, but that was what put the act over in the first place. Any rock musician can put on a costume, but how many could have inhabited the identity of an androgynous Martian rock star come to Earth in its dying days so convincingly, so effortlessly? Bowie has credited two men with serving as his aspiration for creating Ziggy Stardust. One was the man he met and spoke with after his first Velvet Underground concert and took to be Moo Reed, but who was, in fact, Reed's replacement in the Velvets. He sat there and talked as though he was Lou, and he was talking about how he wrote Waiting for the Man and all these things, recalled Bowie years later. And it was at that point I realized that at the time, it didn't matter to me if this was the real one or a fake one. The other inspiration was Vince Taylor, an obscure figure to Americans, but a figure well-known in late 1960s London as a former pop star very publicly losing his mind. He fired his band and went on stage one night in a white sheet. He told the audience to rejoice that he was Jesus. They put him away. From this mix, Bowie created the persona and groundbreaking album that offered a finger up the nose of pop sincerity, a boot in the collective sagging denim behind the hippie singer's song whiners, and made his career. As one of the roughly 60 young Londoners in the audience that night at the Toby Jug now recalls, Bowie had brought theater to a humble pub gig. I couldn't blink for fear of missing something. Nothing would ever be the same again. February 11. On this date in history, in the year 2020, the World Health Organization officially names novel coronavirus disease COVID-19. A few months after the first known case was detected in Wuhan, China, and approximately three weeks after the first U.S. case was reported on February 11, 2020, the World Health Organization officially named the illness that would go on to cause a pandemic. Coronavirus Disease 2019, shortened to the acronym COVID-19. Often referred to as the Wuhan virus in its very early stages, and also NCOV-2019, WHO guidelines state that names for new infectious diseases 
may not include geographic locations, animals, individuals, or groups of people and must be pronounceable. CO stands for Corona, VI stands for Virus, D is for Disease, and 2019 represents the year it was discovered. Having a name matters to prevent the use of other names that can be inaccurate or stigmatizing, World Health Organization Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus said during a meeting briefing announcing the name. It also gives us a standard format to use for any future coronavirus outbreaks. Since its onset, COVID-19 rapidly spread to every continent. By early 2022, it resulted in roughly 400 million global cases and 5.7 million deaths, including more than 900,000 deaths in the United States alone. February 12. On this date in music history in the year 1924, George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue is performed for the very first time. The audience packed a house that could have been sold out at twice the size, wrote New York Times critic Olin Downs on February 13, 1924, of a concert staged the previous afternoon at the Aeolian Hall in New York City. Billed as an educational event, the Experiment in Modern Music concert was organized by Paul Whiteman, the immensely popular leader of the Palais Royal Orchestra, to demonstrate that the relatively new form of music called jazz deserved to be regarded as a serious and sophisticated art form. The program featured didactic segments intended to make this case, segments with titles like Contrast, Legitimate Scoring versus Jazzing. After 24 such stemwinders, the house was growing restless. Then, a young man named George Gershwin, then known only as a composer of Broadway songs, seated himself at the piano to accompany the orchestra in the performance of a brand new piece of his own composition called Rhapsody in Blue. It starts with an outrageous cadenza of the clarinet, wrote Downs of the now-famous two-and-a-half-octave glissando that makes Rhapsody in Blue as instantly recognizable as Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It has subsidiary phrases logically growing out of it, often metamorphosed by devices of rhythm and instrumentation. The music critic of the New York Times was in agreement with Whiteman's basic premise, this is no mere dance tune set for piano and other instruments, he judged. This composition shows extraordinary talent, just as it also shows a young composer with aims that go far beyond those of his ilk. It may be true that George Gershwin had always hoped to transcend the category of popular music, but the piece he used to accomplish that feat was put together very hastily. Just five weeks prior to the experiment in Modern Music Concert, Gershwin had not committed to writing a piece for it. When his brother, Ira, read a report in the New York Tribune stating that George was at work at a jazz concerto for the program. Thus painted into a corner, George Gershwin pieced Rhapsody and Blue together as best he could in the time available, leaving his own piano part to be improvised during the world premiere. Rhapsody would, of course, come to be regarded as one of the most important American musical works of the 20th century. It would also open the door for a whole generation of serious composers and writers, from Copland to Brecht, to draw on jazz elements in their own important works. 
And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for February 6th through February 12th. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.